0: Hello everybody and welcome back to the She Can She Did podcast, aka the podcast in which I, Fiona Grayson, sit down with female founders dotted all over the UK, usually over a giant cup of coffee, but of course on Zoom for the foreseeable future, and ask them to open up to me about absolutely everything they've been through, warts and all, to not just launch, but sustain and grow their businesses to date. The overarching aim being, of course, that She Can She Did encourages current female founders to purchase persevere by highlighting that setbacks on route are oh so normal but also to inspire as many aspiring business owners that launching a business is possible no matter what age you are but only if you're willing to grit your teeth and work seriously hard. Now, before we get going, those of you that listen regularly will know that this podcast is of course sponsored by Tide Business Current Accounts, aka the business current account dedicated to over 200,000 startups, founders and freelancers that I've been banking with ever since I switched over to being a limited company at the end of 2018. They also happen to be the only place in the UK where you can register a limited company and open a business account in one process for free. How exciting, I know. Now, no one likes a sales pitch, do they? But it's a service which I so, so wish had been available back in 2018, because it really would have streamlined the whole process for me. And Tide cover the £12 company's house incorporation fee too. So it basically means that you can start your business journey as a limited company with Tide for free essentially for those of you that want to set up as a limited company or switch from being a sole trader to a limited company like I did all you do is search the company name you would like so I would have put in she can she did limited enter your personal and business details and in a matter of minutes your limited company application will be sent your tide business current account will be set up and you are good to go now it's worth noting that tide have no monthly fees and they have all the fancy perks that you could want and need from a business account, including account integrations, easy invoicing, scheduled payments, member perks, etc, etc. They really are pretty great. So please do feel free to have a peek at www.tide.co forward slash start if you are interested. A giant, giant thank you as always to Tide for being such an amazing sponsor. Now, with that said, last Saturday, I had the pleasure of chatting to Larato Uma Shayla, founder of the Eastbourne-based foodie brand that is Larato Foods, a company that always makes me hungry every time I see her creations pop up on my Instagram feed, that she launched after returning to the UK from Nigeria in her early 20s, that is now comprised of Larato's cookery school, supper clubs, a gourmet brownie business that will make you want to drool, and a soon-to-be-launched gourmet a spice range too. Now Lorato was due to speak on the panel at the Brighton Midweek Mingle back in March which I of course had to cancel because we went into lockdown but in many ways I'm so so grateful that we got to chat on here instead because as you're about to hear we go on to cover quite a bit. She was such a joy to chat to so I really hope you enjoy it. This is Lorato's story to date. (laughs) and your business and your brand, I suppose, is that there's so many different strings to this bow that I don't know where to start. So I suppose (laughs) it would be good to just dive in with, in your own words, what your brand is all about
1: and we will take it from there. How long has it been going, all of that? Yes, so my brand is called Lerato Foods and Naturals. And essentially it's a food company that includes immersive events, cookery classes with the cookery school, and fine food products. So as simple as that. And so with the immersive events, that's the cookery classes, supper clubs, different interesting events. Like I've got African afternoon tea, which is like an afternoon tea, but with African flavors and chocolate. And I also use that as an opportunity to educate people on the fact that majority of the world's cocoa and chocolate produce comes from West Africa. So I use all these different avenues to sort of invite people to The African culture, my culture, and also to teach them contemporary African recipes that they can apply to -to day-to-day lives. For example, I live in the UK. I live in Eastbourne. My family is very multicultural. So even though we eat African food, we pair it with different things. We pair it with British ingredients, Dutch ingredients, German food. My my mother-in-law is German. So we eat a lot of different mishmash of foods that represent our culture. So I use the cookery school and the immersive events to educate people. Sometimes they have no clue what several different regions in Africa would eat. So I use that as an opportunity to share with people. And then I use the cookery classes to teach them how to cook these things at home. And then with the fine food products, so we have uh, gourmet brownies, which I make using Divine Chocolate, which is a farmer co-owned chocolate company. I assume they're the only ones actually who are a chocolate company that the farmers own a cooperative and they get money from their produce. It's unheard of. So I use this intentionally to sort of inspire that conversation. So people talk about it, they're like fantastic chocolate. I love your brownies. What kind of chocolate do you use? I tell them and then when we discuss, you know, the fact that I'm doing it because I'm trying to represent that amazing produce that we do have. And then moving on to more fine food products. In the next month we're going to be coming out with a spice brand which would work with the cookery school. So I know sometimes it sounds like there's all these different things, but they're very much linked and very much intentional. Yeah, it just reminds me of Jamie Oliver, Nigella Lawson. Like Once you
0: create that brand, there's so many offshoots and you can kind of go down different avenues, but they all tie in with the same core values and like the food and I guess the roots going back
1: to Africa tie it all together. It's amazing. Yeah, Yeah, they tie all together. The root is my root as an African, And everything else ties in. I mean, of course, as a cookery teacher, because I have a cookery school and I live in the UK, it doesn't make great business sense to only teach African cooking because there's not that many Africans anyway. And even though non-Africans come to the class and learn, basically they want me to teach them how to cook. So I have a kids' cookery club where we teach kids how to make pasta from scratch, how to cook. They watch me prepare salmon for them to make salmon fish cakes. You know, sometimes you won't believe that kids haven't even seen like the whole fish because they see it in the tin or they see it ready chopped up in the supermarket. So my kids' cookery club, we don't really do baking classes. We do baking classes for Christmas. But the idea is to teach kids how to cook Mm. and not as entertainment as an important skill in life. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's crazy, because I mean, I feel so fortunate that my mum
0: really got us helping in the kitchen from such an early age. So my sister and I are really confident in the kitchen. Although while you were saying that, I'm quite confident with Southeast Asian cooking and Indian cooking. But African isn't something that I've really explored. So now I feel like that's my to-do list tonight. I'm going to have a Google of all your different recipes
1: and go on your Instagram, have a peek and see what I can try for later. I've got African afternoon tea, virtual afternoon tea. (laughs) So you've got to come on that. And what I've done is for the virtual afternoon tea, when people book online, they get a box of our gourmet brownies. If they're in the UK, (laughs) if they're not (laughs) in the UK, then I'll probably give you another treat. But they get a box. So you have something physical to enjoy before and during our tea. And then I have these recipes with interesting, vibrant flavors. Like we have the plantain canapé, a bean tart, but all of these are very much, if you are Nigerian, you will recognize the different little things. And I also tell people what inspired those dishes. And then I teach you how to make canapes. So the idea is, even if you haven't been eating African food, now you've learned how to make African-inspired canapes at your next dinner party you're going to be serving something really interesting yeah that your guests would have probably never had and they'll be jealous of <laughs> i love that that's the thing it's so easy with food isn't it to get stuck
0: in a rut and play it safe and do the things that you know that you can nail and you've yeah. got sorted and just yeah.
1: doing those over and over but that's fine because it's my job to introduce it to you and to seduce yeah. you to try it you know <laughs> Absolutely. No, I love that. Let's go back a
0: few steps. I'm really interested in where this all started. And I suppose what inspired you to become self-employed and and launch your own business? And what did that reality look like in terms of what did you prioritise from the moment you decided to go for it to get it off the ground?
1: I would say the beginning of my life in food probably started from, I will start from the desire when I was university in London I wasn't really one of those students that would go to the sports bar or the pub or dine out drinking. Students tend to have this routine where they study and they go out and then they get fast and then they come here. I never really did that. So I was almost always awake. (laughs) And I didn't spend that much money socializing in that way. But then what that meant was I had more time to sort of explore, discover myself. What I was spending money on was eating out a lot in really nice restaurants. So I was like the encyclopedia of restaurants. My friends would email me and say, oh, you know, what's the in place to go and things like that. So I would always go out, eat food, sometimes nice, sometimes fantastic, sometimes more mediocre. But then I always come back and sort of feel like recreating those dishes. But then I already knew how to cook because as a child growing up, my mother doesn't like me saying this because I think she wants me to tell everyone that she taught me how to cook. But the truth <laughs> is, we had a chef at home and he taught me how to cook. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't allowed in the kitchen, but I would sneak in because he would make these fantastic curries and so he would teach me. So I became an intuitive cook. So in university, when I would eat really nice, elegant restaurant food, I'd come back home and try to recreate this. I kept practicing. And then after university, I studied economics. You know, I was supposed to go and work for the World Bank or something. <laughs> And then I went and traveled to Nigeria. and I just got really inspired by the culture. And mind you, I did travel to Nigeria for the first time. I was born in England, but I was sort of bred there as well. So my life had always been 50-50. I know Nigeria as much as I know the UK. So going back after university, I just saw it in a different way. I saw that I could work in food. I had that desire and that passion from seeing people cooking on the street, seeing lots of different market women and talking to them about produce. And then the desire to actually own a business started from when I returned to Nigeria and realized, gosh, I think this is what I want to do for a living. And then I started a sort of catering business. And it was a catering business and a pizzeria, funny enough. (laughs) Is this in Nigeria? This was in Nigeria, yeah. Because the funny thing is, in Nigeria, Nigerian food is everywhere, so it's not a big deal. But international food, just like in London, international food is a big deal. So having an Indian restaurant or a Thai restaurant or a pizzeria is a bigger deal. So in Nigeria, I started, this was my first business. I had a pizzeria and a catering company and I would feed people at awards ceremonies and we had a delivery system. So that's how I sort of got my training in serving the public and being a businesswoman. And how old were you at that point? I must have been 19 or 20. Wow. I actually graduated really, really early from university. It was a very odd story. But yeah, I graduated just after my 18th birthday. Unusual, but true. Hang on a second. (laughs) I'm not letting that one pass. Why were you at uni that young? I don't really like telling people this because I have to explain. I just was, you know, I was. I had finished school so early. My mother had to go through a lot of hoops. She had to sign an affidavit saying, you know, she's graduated. So in Nigeria, we have this thing called double promotions. If you're too brilliant for a class, you get a double promotion, you skip two classes. So I think I must have had a double promotion once or twice, maybe twice. (laughs) Wow. Oh, my gosh. They grade you. And if you're too advanced for a class, you skip to another class. So I had that maybe once, maybe once or twice. And then that's why I finished so early. So I was really too young, age-wise, to go to university, but brain-wise, I was ready. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. Go you. <laughs> that's amazing. Honestly, I, I don't really bring it up because it's, yeah, it makes me feel embarrassed. And at the end of the day, it's, it's not about how fast, it's about the destination. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it just so happens that that's my story. So I finished university quite early. And my mother thought I didn't really have life experience at the time, even though I started having business experience. But that was really good. But then moving on from that, my path took a very interesting turn. Because once I had that business, I started meeting a lot of people in different spheres of life. And then once a TV producer came as a customer, and we had a really intense afternoon talking about food. And then he told me about a TV show that he was planning. And the lady that was supposed to be on that show was pregnant at the time and had complications or something like that. And then he says, why don't you come on the show? And I was like, huh, I never thought of that. I never actually thought, you know, when you watch Nigella and people like that on the telly and you wish you were them. sometimes you're not really serious. I never really saw myself as that. But then that's how I got into TV, did my first TV cooking show in Nigeria. It's for a network that broadcasts across the continent. So that was really, really good for viewers. And then, yeah, moving on, then the next TV show and then the next, and then I moved back to England after I got married. And mind you, this is in the space of maybe two years (laughs) that all these happen. (laughs) So you're now, we're talking early 20s. Early 20s, yeah, early 20s. And then um, I moved back here. And then, um, yeah, I started supper clubs here because obviously I, I had a TV career in Nigeria, but I didn't have one here. But because I had been working in food for quite a few years, I knew for sure that this was what I wanted. I just wasn't sure the path I would take. So I started supper clubs, which at the time, even now, is still very mysterious. A lot more people know about it. But supper clubs, for those who don't know what supper club is, you know, you book online. Sometimes the venue is advertised, sometimes it's not. And then you attend a feast. Sometimes people have themes. So my theme was always contemporary African food. Sometimes it would be immersive, meaning, you know, you might help me cook some things at the last minute. Or there might be a presentation table where everyone's sitting down on a long table while I'm prepping the salad and talking about the inspiration. And then from supper clubs, people kept asking, oh, how can I make this? I really want to learn this recipe. And I thought, OK, I guess I'll teach. Then I started cookery classes. And then it became a fully fledged cookery school. And then we do classes in London. We rent a space in London. We rent a space in Eastbourne, where I live. And then I also do cookie classes now in Brighton, but that's in association with a community kitchen who do a lot of these to raise money for people who don't earn that much or who have mental illness challenges, sometimes people who are diabetics or people that have different challenges in the community. And then we do that for them. Mm. So it's really interesting when that's how I literally morphed into, there was never any one great intention in the beginning, but it's all worked out. Absolutely the minute you make that leap or have,
0: I guess, the guts to just start somewhere, it's so interesting how it snowballs and how when you can look back in hindsight and you realize how it all added up. I am still going to push back and go back a few steps. So I'm really interested in, we're still back in Nigeria, because I'm really interested in how when that TV production company came to you, that is a huge opportunity. And it's an opportunity that I think a lot of people will admire and envy because it is, like you said, when you watch people like Nigella Lawson, you kind of think she's so amazing, she's so lucky, et cetera, et cetera. And I always think behind all of those impressive roles, it takes bravery to put yourself up for a job like that and kind of step into that role. So was that a kind of comfortable fit or were you nervous or how did you approach that whole thing and I suppose rise to that challenge, I guess?
1: I would say it is a comfortable fit, but that's because of who I am. As a child, my mother really, my brother and I, we did quite a few TV and billboard adverts. So as a child, my mother always pushed me. I was actually quite a performative child. Even though I was a shy child, it's weird. Even as an adult, I'm very shy, but I'm still very performative. You can have those two, it can work. Yeah, yeah, I can so relate to that. (laughs) Yeah, people find it weird when I say I'm shy, I'm like, yes, I am. But so as a child, I had had those really scary, daunting experiences. So I knew that nothing would happen. But I feel like there's almost luck slash you being the right fit. Because even Nigella, I'm not sure what her story is in terms of the first time she was on TV. But a lot of these things also help depending on how you've been shaped. So because I had that food business that the customer came to, that created a a very good foundation for him to even meet me. Absolutely. Because we sat down and had that conversation and my passion, he could feel it right in front of him. That's why he was able to offer me that role. So I think sometimes it's not really a case of going to apply for the job. There's a lot of chance meetings, but we both know that, and I'm sure in your work, you know that now that we've been through certain things, if you want something, you have to make yourself worthy of that thing that you want you have to put yourself in the right place to meet the right people sometimes it's luck sometimes you have to be intentional <laughs> oh my
0: gosh Loretta, I honestly can say so relate to that one of my favorite podcasts to listen to is the how I built this one the NPRs with Guy Raz and he always asks these huge names like the Richard Bransons of the world would you credit your success to luck or the work you put in kind of thing and they always answer with a 80-20 ratio in terms of the 20% luck. But it always bothers me because there's so many amazing opportunities that crop up. But like you said, you had already launched a business in your late teens to get that role. Therefore, when that TV presenter offers you the job, he's met you at an event that you're catering. And therefore, you have put the work in to get that. Yeah. And I always think, no, it's down to the work you're putting in always and you kind of create those opportunities because of the work you're putting in
1: yeah because sometimes people make it sound too easy yeah even if you're a very wealthy person and you know lots of people somebody has worked for that wealth for that opportunity that you now have nothing is ever really always down to just luck i think luck is just a very small percentage but that luck can only get you so far yeah because even if i'm lucky and somebody just walks into my house and says hi I want you to be on TV. When I get on TV, can I do the job? Am I the right fit? There's so many other things. Yeah. You know, am I going to be a hit on TV or a flop? Because as we know, not every cookery writer is actually a good TV presenter. Yeah, absolutely. Not every TV presenter is a good cookery writer. Yeah. So not everyone has all those skills. So in my situation, though, I do have a lot of lucky instances. But before I move past that luck, I have to sell it. When that luck comes to me, I have to sell that package (laughs) to reach the finishing line, yeah. Also, so many of those lucky opportunities, I could talk all day about this, I will move on, I promise. But
0: so many of those lucky opportunities also come hand in hand with pressure and all of that kind of thing. So even if they are lucky, in inverted commas, There is still so much work that has to go into fully embracing them and rising to, I suppose. But anyway, when you moved to the UK, like you said, you'd had that successful business and presenting career in Nigeria. You moved to the UK when you're married and that network isn't there in the UK. I'm really interested in how you went about marketing you, your brand, The Supper Clubs, how you got the word out there, and
1: I suppose how your approach has evolved along the way. Okay. So remember, I studied here already before moving back to Nigeria. So I returned here. And like you said, I returned here with a new career. I didn't have that network. I wasn't in any food network at all. I didn't even have any friends in the food business. I tell you the first thing I did. So the first thing I did was tap into what I already know. I had already had TV experience. And TV experience, no matter where you are in the world, we speak the same language. I literally sent an email to the BBC and the different divisions, sent an email to BBC Africa, BBC World News, BBC Sussex and sorry, where I live. And I said, you know what? I need these people to interview me, feature me, feature my project, which was African Afternoon Tea, was my first supper club event. And I emailed Time Out, I emailed Evening st- Basically, I just emailed the entire press <laughs> in the UK. I was never really keen on bloggers because I believe... I, I like customers to tell other customers that they like my things. I was never really keen on bloggers saying they liked my thing because I gave them a freebie or nothing against bloggers. But I, just, I like customers who appreciate me and spread the word. So first thing was I tackled the press and... They responded. So people like Time Out, Evening Standard, the BBC. BBC sent somebody to record my afternoon tea session. So these are things that laymen tend not to do that because they think they can't. But then why not? Mm. It's human beings that are in these organizations. But because I came from that background of working with the media, I know there's a face to every newspaper. There's a person behind the column. So I wasn't scared to approach. I think that's been one of the things that's helped me a lot Being able to get press features by myself, just by sending an email, introducing myself and just knowing what it takes. I've worked as a newspaper editor in the past. So I know that if you approach an editor with something that's well-written, timely, you give enough information and they need that information at that time, they'll use it. So I knew all this. So that's what I used to my advantage. But everything else in terms of trying to market I was just winging it, you know, I was using social media. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I was just trying anything that works. I'd tweet, I'd get in touch with people who had blogs that they would use it to advertise events. There's some bloggers that literally all they do is just advertise events to grow their following. So I would work with some of them to have them list me on their events listings. And then I'll tweet. And then I started meeting different people who liked my idea liked my events, liked me, I wanted to follow me. And that's how it started. It was just, the only thing I was sure of was contact the press. And if you can get yourself in at least some press clippings, then as a business, it means that you've done quite well. People pay people too. Yeah, 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 it's so, so
0: true. I love that. And I love the honesty behind that because it is true. And you sometimes have to email 50 people to get five responses or a hundred people to get yeah. five responses. But ultimately it's that persistence, isn't it? And that also that willingness to reach out. How quickly did the supper clubs and the afternoon teas, how did they pick up? What was the uptake for them in the early days compared to now?
1: It picked up really well, especially because of the press clippings. People like Time Out would say, you know, an amazing event to attend, and they'd put the date and everything. So that momentum grew quite quickly. And obviously, I would use that information and say, hey, did you see us on Time Out? And you know how people are, if you're in the press, it means you matter. I don't know why we're like this, but this is the truth. So I used those press clippings to create the momentum and it did quite well. It did very, very well sales wise. And then it did horribly as an event because, well, I have two sets of guests that will tell you two different things. The first event I had solidified my reputation with certain people. It made me grow following that are still following now, still supporting. And then I had a few complaints because that day we sold almost, we sold almost, maybe almost 50 to 60 tickets for a one day event. Wow. So I was feeling super bold with myself. I thought, you know, we'll do like the top restaurants, we'll have two seatings. But then what I didn't realize was how much work would go into it. And the first seating ran over. We had people standing at the door, queuing, waiting to get into the second seating. so we had angry customers, people asking for refunds. So it was a disaster. I had a partnership with a chocolate company and they sent me loads of chocolate as gifts for my guests. And then I forgot all the chocolate at home. Oh my God. <laughs> no. I forgot all the chocolate at home in Eastbourne, which is two hours away from our event in London. It was an absolute nightmare. Well, ask a few of my followers and friends who have support and they'll tell you what's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what that reminds
0: me of? Um, the first uh-huh. midweek mingle I ran in my hometown was, um, I live in a place called Stony Stratford, but five minutes down the road is Milton Keynes. And I did a Milton Keynes midweek mingle last September. And because it was literally five minutes from my flat, and we do them obviously in the roadshow, so the three, I would have been looking forward to Milton Keynes, and I remember just thinking, like, oh, it's fine, it's home, like, what can go wrong? And I think I really took my foot off the pedal for that, because I'd been so relaxed, and actually we got to the venue, and I'd forgotten, you know, it's completely dry hire, and I'd forgotten everything from, like, just silly things like, the gym brand had sent gym, but they weren't turning up for that one. So we were doing the bar and I'd forgotten things like your ice bucket, your knife to cut the garnishes, a chopping board, all of those like silly things. Important and it's just, things. yeah, they're so super important. But I just remember being like, oh my God, what an idiot, as if I'd forgotten all the basics. I can so appreciate the stress of setting up an event. Yeah. How did you deal with those complaints? I always think in a hospitality role and you know that phrase, customers are always right, et cetera, et cetera. How do you deal with that situation when ultimately that responsibility lies with you? It falls on your shoulders. So how did you go about that? So
1: for those who complained, I sent an apology email. I offered refunds, which was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) People say, oh, you should never offer refunds if somebody just complains, but they ate everything. I offered refunds to those that asked for refunds. I sent apology letters and then I gave them invitations to another event. Gosh, I cried my eyes out. But then I also remembered that that was my first time. And because I was so confident in what I was doing, and I'm very, quite religious as well. So I said to myself, I said, God is not going to make me sell so many tickets just to make a fool out of me. (laughs) I said, said, no, I doubt that this was the plan. So I just trusted that I did so well in terms of getting the word out, selling all those tickets, because it was a worthy event. So I apologize to those who complained gave them refunds, offered them to come back. Some of them came back and I just didn't shy away from my projects. So I didn't just sort of disappear. Mm -hmm. I continued. I continued. I did another one and another one and another one. One thing I realized with that event was it was also a very ballsy event because even when you go to a restaurant or a hotel to have afternoon tea, it's very difficult. There's a team of people making all the little things. It may look like not much, but all those little bites take time they would have done them well in advance. They have a team. And that's why they're always very specific. There's always afternoon teas, never really all day long. There's specific times so that they can just focus on serving you at that time. And then they know that's the end. So it was actually an ambitious event to create anyway. So I consoled myself with that. And moving on, it's something that people keep asking for, but I offer it on a private basis. Now, if you have a private party or People like booking it for their hen and things like that. Yeah. Um, girly parties, uh, family celebrations. And then I thought, now that we're on lockdown, well, we're coming out of lockdown, but I thought now would be a good time to do it as a virtual event. I was never really keen on virtual events in the past, but now that I was forced to try it, I think it's fantastic. And I love telling the story because I I don't shy away from my mistakes. I feel like it's important for people to know that I'm not perfect. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not perfect. I haven't always been perfect. Now I'm super organized, but I've learned the importance of literally making a list of every single thing, including a hairpin, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's so true. It's so, so true. And there will be more mistakes. There's always going to be mistakes, but you just have to take it on the chin. Every business, you're going to have a customer who complains because you made a mistake or because the customer just complained. People complain about the weirdest thing, but I think just taking it on the chin and the customer is always right, even if the customer is ever wrong. But I think the point of that question is when somebody comes to you with a complaint based on your service or your brand, you need to just be polite, explain yourself and offer something. Either you offer them, you know, a discount or an invitation back, just try to appease them, put yourself Mm. in their shoes and think about what you'd like, how you'd like to be treated. Absolutely. That's how I operated then. And that's how I operate now. (laughs) Let's
0: roll with this then, because you've mentioned that challenge in terms of the event side. But in general, what have you found, I guess, the hardest part about being your own boss right from the early days through to now? And do you have any standout real low days on the job?
1: Yes. So What stands out about being my own boss? The great positive is the flexibility, the flexibility of making decisions of setting my own time of doing whatever I want, basically. And the downside is doing too much, which you have to, which I think is important that you do in the beginning. Because even if you have a business that grows into having millions of staff, I think it's important for you and it's important for your people that work with you to know that you can do a lot, that you're competent, Because then people don't sort of look down on you or feel that they're doing you a favor. Mm. But then what I suffer now, which I'm actually working on, I'm trying to cure myself of, is doing everything. So I do a lot. I manage my website. I just happen to have a little bit of knowledge on back-end tweaking of websites. (laughs) So I manage my own website. I manage all the orders. I bake. I cook. I plan. I do all the inventory, invoicing, everything. It's only just been in the last month that I've literally just started to give people jobs. So like a social media manager, somebody to handle my newsletters. When we do cookery classes, I do have an assistant who helps in the class. There's a KP to wash dishes and all that. But in the very first few months, my husband was doing the dishes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My husband was, you know, I'd say, Oh, hi, hi, everyone. Have you met my husband? And they were like, No, I'm like, oh oh yeah, he's in the back. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or we come back home and I'm talking to him about leave. I'm like, honey, did you see all that? Did you say hi to my friends and those people? And he'd be like, I wasn't there. I was in the back. (laughs) (laughs) So I have no regret that we had to start this way. You have to start from somewhere, especially since my business, I haven't actually gotten money from any financial institutions. I haven't actually asked to run my business. I've done it from my money from the beginning. Now things are changing. We're scaling up. But I would say that the downside, which I started as a necessity of doing most things myself, it starts to feel lonely. It gets too much because it's too much for one person to do everything for a company to grow. But then the positive is that then you realize that and then you know that you have to scale up, Mm -hmm. you know, you're stuck and then you have to scale up. Scaling up meaning invest more money, invest in people that can invest in you grow a team to actually grow the company that's been sort of the ride for me now (laughs) so is that what you're you're doing that's your focus at the moment is getting investment so my focus now is scaling up to scale up we will need investment because i would need staff to take on several different roles the more hands we have the more efficient the company would be I don't have to wake up and think, oh, okay, now I've got to do social media. I've got to do newsletter. You've only got a few hours in the day. Mm. So now we started scaling up in terms of hands-on in the company. And then over the next few years, we're going to look at different... You see, I'm one of those people who's never really liked loans. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even like paying for, um, what do you call it? Like a mobile phone. (laughs) I like buying things and just owning it. And like, I bought that, I paid and it's mine. But that's no way to run a business. I'm at that stage where I'm going to be looking into getting investment in to scale up the business, getting a factory space so that we can produce our brownies on larger scale so that we can have a packing unit for the spices and just having different people that are experts in their different fields to do the best that they can. Yeah, absolutely. It's no longer about me. I want the business to grow beyond me and I want to actually physically do less so work smart not hard <laughs> yeah, yeah that phrase
0: always makes me laugh because it's so true it's important it's so important yeah but it's bloody hard to like put that into practice sometimes and I think it is it's like the process isn't it That comes with time yeah just popping on here with a quick reminder that Tide Business Current Accounts happens to be the only place in the UK where you can register a limited company and open a business account in one process for free. For more information and to get started please do feel free to visit www.tide.co forward slash start or follow the link in this episode's show notes. mentioned loneliness there and i guess just the general just managing the stress and everything yeah yeah how do you deal with that because it is it can be lonely ultimately you carry the vision for that brand and where you want it to go and like i've said before it falls on your shoulders to put that into place so how do you navigate that reality of being your own boss
1: i think that the way that i've been dealing with it which hasn't been the best is Literally giving myself some time off. Now, the problem with when you're the master of everything in your business is when you take time off, your business is taking time off. (laughs) So if I say that I'm not going to do anything all weekend, I'm not going to post anything. I'm not going to email anyone. I'm not going to do any adverts. It's like I switched my business off. So I've tried to be smart by using, you know, there's so many tools available to us. You can schedule social media posts. You can schedule ads. And then another important thing was having direct-to-customer products. So things like the brownies on the website. So you can go on the website and order brownies while I'm sipping a pina colada on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so having those, having product that, because my business started as something that was very physically demanding. I have to be present but then I'm creating products that don't depend on my physical presence anymore that you can buy. So I can do adverts, I can do social media posts, I can schedule posts so that people are kept in the loop. And another way that I've run my business, actually, which affected me a bit during COVID for the days that I had a slump in mood is it's a very personality-based business. So I tell people all the time what I'm doing. Business-wise, I share a lot. It's like I'm holding their hands and they're holding mine constantly. So the moment that I'm not there, there's a almost like a void, <laughs> which I guess it's sweet and it's good, but it's not good if your business is to be sustainable. And this is, brings us back to having other hands. So if somebody asks me a question on social media, for example, and I'm having a social media detox day, there's somebody else that can maybe answer. It's still challenging and I'm trying to navigate and find different solutions, but You know how our world is becoming increasingly connected, where anyone that needs anything just goes on Instagram and asks a question. If you don't get a response in five minutes, you feel neglected. You know, (laughs) I think we need to all sort of pause a little bit, but um, I'm trying to navigate with new ideas. And especially, I think, using those technological advances available to us and then using people, the right people to come into the company Moving forward would be my secret to growing even better and having more solutions to uh, those periods, like like you said, where I'm trying to avoid doing too much. Mm. That's the solution so far, and I'm seeing the benefit. But then, yeah, going back to your question, being a a business owner and the figurehead, you're never really, I guess, it it also depends on your personal decision. Some people are the figureheads of businesses and they step back a lot. But mine is in that kind of business. I think people literally buy things, book things based on their like of my personality based on that business. So I can never really shy away from my I mean, the company is my name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which not a lot of customers actually realize. Sometimes people email and say, Team Lerato Foods. <laughs> yeah, you know, I like that. It's sweet. It's my name, but it's my name because I couldn't come up with any other name. And my name actually means love or like song of my soul, which I think is a great description of my love for food and people. Mm. Yeah. But you being a business owner as well, I'm sure your events, can you imagine somebody else hosting your events? Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Honestly, it's something
0: I'm, you know, I'm gearing up to launch the main face of the business in September and the Mingles will come back. Absolutely. Obviously we will be allowed to one day, but that's part of the plan to bring them back. But I have had that thought in my head in terms of when she can, she did scales if it scales the way I wanted to. It's something that I don't think compromise on. I'd like to have other events that focus on different elements of running a business and maybe I hand those over. But the mingles are definitely, just by the nature of them, they're like my babies. I can't imagine handing that responsibility
1: over. Yeah, they're personality-based. And then your audience, they're actually booking it because of what you promise. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Going back to what you
0: were saying, though, about, you know, customers, because of the nature of how Instagram works now, and if you don't respond in five minutes, et cetera, et cetera, I've been reading a lot recently, and I'm trying to find the time to sit down and write about it, because I'm always a bit more coherent when I sit down and write, but I, um, I personally feel like there's room to put boundaries in place. Because I hear this come up on so many interviews, especially when the name's in the business, because it is, you know, it's the face of the brand. And there's so many amazing parts to being the face of the brand. And people, like you said, they want to know you, they like you, and like, why wouldn't they kind of thing? But when it comes, like you said, if you want to put your phone down for the weekend, you have every right to and it's i suppose navigating the next stage where collectively we all need to take that action to put boundaries in place and kind of fight that problem where people just demand answers and it's there's nothing wrong with waiting 48 hours for a response in my opinion there really isn't yeah i mean don't get me wrong if it takes a month to get back maybe there's an issue but do you know what i mean i think yes I'll be really interested to see, because I think there's fatigue that's like across the board, not just with female business owners, but any brand running a business. That fatigue where just keeping up with that demand and actually taking a step back and being like, hang on a second. yeah, That's not okay. Why are we allowing that? Yeah, I don't know. There needs to be, I personally yeah. feel like a shift. But like I said, I
1: will sit down and write about that one day. I remember when I first started, somebody would email me maybe at 11 p.m. And I email them back at 11.30. And I'd be so proud, like, wow, I'm such a champion responder. You know, and they'd respond the next morning, say, oh, thank you so much for your quick response. And I'd be like, yes, customer yeah. service. <laughs> I'm, I'm great at it. That's not right. <laughs> yeah. But it's not their fault. It's my fault. Yeah, yeah. For trying to be so um, effective. Yeah. And I changed that. My husband actually helped a lot. He says, honey, why don't you approach your day like a nine to five? Give yourself tasks in the day. And then when it's five o'clock, you log off work. Obviously, it doesn't always work. Sometimes I'm still working. If I'm baking, I'm still baking at night. But I think that mindset for a business owner who doesn't have typical office hours, just having that mindset will help you in two ways. It'll help you become more organized, productive when you think that that's the time you have. And it'll also help you for your mental health and your work-life balance so that you're not trying to overdo things. I think even in people that have nine to five, sometimes there's this feeling of, oh, I work overtime. I'm going to get lots of praise. People are going to see that I work really hard. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. It's nice to give more time, do overtime, but it's not nice to do overtime religiously because you feel that you're going to get some sort of recognition for it. You always suffer. Absolutely. That email can wait till the next day.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You mentioned your husband quite a bit in this interview.
1: I'm really interested in
0: terms of relationships, I always think it's interesting to find out how relationships evolve throughout the whole process of running a business. Have you seen not just with you know your husband, but friends, family, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, how have those closest to you and your wider circle network reacted to you running a business? And how have you seen any relationships evolve for the better or worse as you have become more successful and busier, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera?
1: So my relationships, unfortunately, have only evolved. And I say this not to sound spiteful or unhappy. It's almost like a lot of my friends had to see the success level to almost accept that my business was a real business. So I get people asking me things like, "Well, how do you make money? But are you making any money? You know, and I have people saying things like, oh, you're so lucky to have a husband that can let you engage in your hobby. You know, things like that. They're not trying to be rude, but this is what they think. Mm. So I've had different close friends, not so close friends, make those kind of comments in the past because they have this assumption that what I'm doing can't be serious. But when they see reviews, when they see newspaper clippings, when they hear me on the radio or the BBC, and it almost clicks like, oh, she's actually serious. Oh, this is actually a thing. People are actually buying these things. She's not just baking it and giving it out to like, people on the street. <laughs> and it's not their fault. I think it's nothing to do with me. It's based on their preconception of what the job is and possibly their inability to imagine that as an actual thing just because I may not have brick and mortar like everyone else. You know, some people literally associate a business with, where's your shop? Yeah, do you have an you know, office? Where... Do you have a team? Mm. And in real life, some people with the brick and mortar and stuff are not making any money. They're making just enough money to pay for things I'm using bank loans to pay for stuff. Yeah. So this is another reason why I bootstrapped it the way I've done, because I didn't want to have debt. You know, I didn't want to have debt in the beginning. I didn't want that pressure Absolutely. of going to work just because I have to pay the bills. I didn't want that at all. I just wanted to have the freedom to breathe and do what I wanted to do. So that's why I say it's unfortunate that it took them a while. It's almost like they had to see strangers. So my business wasn't built on the backbone of family and friends buying. No. A lot of people do that. They say, when you start a business, invite your friends so they can ramp things up. I did it the other way around. Oh my God, Lorato, When I was trying to phrase investment, it did my head in that
0: people, and I completely, I'm so grateful for it, that they were trying to help. were like, just crowdfund, fee, just crowdfund. You know, Kickstarter, Crowdcube, et cetera, et cetera. And what I think is the misconception with some of those platforms is they're incredible when it all goes swimmingly, but you have to get, I think, 20 or 30% up front. So if you're trying to raise, I don't know, 200 grand, you need to raise at least 40 grand from family and friends before they even put it on Crowdcube public. And it's like, unless you have those family and friends with the 40 grand that are willing to do that, you don't even get to the next stage. And it's like, yeah, that kind of
1: misconception that family and friends are just on hand. Yeah, just on hand to give you their money. Yeah, yeah. And that's even more tough. So I mean, I have very supportive. My mother is very supportive. My husband's mother is super supportive. But people think that your customers must be friends. My customers are my friends now, but they are customers first. My friends are the ones who are now buying because they're sure that it's real. Mm. My advice to people is, I guess you can reach out to friends if your friends, you might have friends that believe in your projects. And don't get me wrong, I have some fantastic friends who are so supportive, but there are a minority of them. But then in life, you, know, you see your friends as customers. Try to impress everybody in the same way. I don't think just because they're my friends, they owe me anything. It's just unfortunate that they have to wait to see me prove yeah. it before. But it's fine now. In terms of relationships, it's been a problem because I'm not socializing as much, but then I've never really been a social person anyway. It just so happens that my job is a social job. So hosting supper clubs, hosting dinner parties. So what I try to do is, I just try to tie that in. I'm like, do you want to hang out? I'm having a supper club, so you can join me there. (laughs) I'm very busy hosting, but it's not really the same because I'm actually working, like a nightclub bouncer or something. He's always at a party, but he's working. (laughs) Such a good simile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, a bartender who's in the middle of the party. You're dancing, you're having fun, but it's work. Yeah. You're not really socializing, are you? So the social aspect has been a bit difficult. Now, with my husband, I would tell you that I'm really, really lucky because we haven't had to fight for time from my work versus family. He's a very, very simple, easygoing guy. And I'm lucky because I'm the one that has a busier lifestyle. So we're not clashing. We just adapt based on my lifestyle. So I I guess if I had a husband who had a busy lifestyle, there might be a problem. There might be arguments and things like that. So I'm just lucky in that respect that my passion and my job is actually a big priority in our household. He has a nine to five job and I'm just happy that I think his personality and the way he accepts what I'm doing, we haven't had any issues where it's like him or me. Literally, if I have to do something, he starts to consider taking off work. He starts to say, oh, so maybe I should take that time off because we have a dog that needs looking after. <laughs> oh, so sweet. So, yeah, I'm really, really lucky that because then in a different relationship, it might be a case of me wondering what's going to happen and me having to ask and him having to say, well, I have to think about it. But he automatically considers that as a natural. So I think he sees himself as part of the team. Yeah which honestly, I'm really grateful for that because even if he didn't, I mean, he doesn't have to, even though he's my husband. I don't think it's compulsory that your husband has to plan his life based on your work. Yeah, huge. It's compromise, isn't it? Yeah, he does. He does. And that allows me to just do my thing. It allows me to be me and work. So I think I'm really lucky in that respect. Hope he doesn't change his mind anytime
0: But <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, the common thing with that, though, is like you said, it means that you don't have to dilute your ambition or anything because you've got someone that's rooting for you. And I think that's the underlying yeah. thing. Whatever that support looks like, I think it's just making sure that in your gut, you know that whoever you're surrounding yourself with or choosing to spend your life with or whatever relationship it is, ultimately, they want you to win. That's yeah. the important thing, right?
1: Yeah and of course from my point of view I mustn't be working to win at their expense. Yeah. Yeah hugely. But there is some sacrifice at both ends and he sacrifices a lot just to make sure I win. Yes.
0: Yeah, so love that. give and I take love that. yeah. Yeah absolutely. Going forward then you've kind of touched upon it already but where do you want the brand to be in 5 10 years down the line?
1: And can you see yourself doing this forever as well? Yes. And this is what gets me out of bed in the days that I find it difficult. I see myself doing this in, in the last days of my life, this is what I want to do. When I say this, I mean, I want to continue teaching. I want to continue hosting lots of supper clubs, bringing people together to eat. I want to keep teaching kids, adults. I want to keep inviting people from different parts of the world to come to my cookery school. I want to keep serving people chocolate, <laughs> <laughs> brownies. And then the next step, which is the spices. Actually the spices is a sneaky plan to make sure that I really get into everyone's home mm. without physically having to be there. Yeah. That's my plan to come be with you in your house for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So this is what I think would be my legacy. Teaching people how to cook, but also inviting them to be more explorative and more creative in the kitchen. But then, I don't think it's enough to have a cookbook and an idea. You need the tools. And for Mm. me, that's why I think those spices really help people bring out flavor in their cooking. Yeah, I mean, I just made a curry for breakfast, so
0: I'd need my garam masala, my turmeric, like, just get it all in, love. I'd I'd buy it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And if you didn't have those things, and you thought of a curry you wouldn't be able to make a curry because you don't have the right ingredients so when people say things like oh just use what you have at home like you have to have the right things though (laughs) yeah so so true it's so true so yeah I, I really see myself doing this forever my very
0: last days absolutely love that what have you learned about yourself then like what has being your own boss taught you about yourself
1: It's taught me that I really like to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, can relate. It's taught me that that I really do like my sleep. And that has helped me in terms of I'm a very proud person. When I say proud, you know, I, I like to do things on my own. I like to tell myself that I can. But it's also taught me that not being able to do everything is not a weakness. It's okay to need help it's okay to work with other people to be your best because other people make you your best. Like for example, when I have a cookery class in London, for example, I have a really good time and I have a really good experience because of my cookery assistant. She's like my, I call her my work wife, Bella. When she's not there, I can do the job, but when she's not there, I feel inadequate. I feel incomplete. So I think having other people, it's good to be able to do things on your own, it's good to have the knowledge that you can, but it's good to have the right people around you and to rely on people. It's a very good feeling mm. to rely on somebody else to make you better as well. I don't think it's a sign of weakness. I do it with my husband as well. And I think with any partner you have, friend, brother, sister, it could be anyone, I think relying on other people can also be a very good thing to sort of make you better. That's one of the things that I've learned most about being a business owner. For too long, I've been very happy being the everything. But then when I started having other people help me, I've been better than just being my everything. (laughs) Yeah,
0: love that so much. Okay, rounding up then, I end with some statements. So I'll start and I'd like you to finish them off, please. So number one, Narato, being my own boss means?
1: Being my own boss means being a very strong woman with a strong vision and a passion for people. And that comes through so well. I love that. When it's not quite going to plan, my advice would be to take a step back, breathe, pray, meditate, remember who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. Absolutely. And get a good night's sleep. (laughs) Get a good night's sleep. Yeah, no, honestly, going back to the sleeping part, because when I'm stressed, I don't sleep. And then I'm even more tired. It's it's, it's, a vicious cycle. It's one of the worst things you can do be stressed out and then try to find a solution while you're tired. And then you find no solution and you're exhausted. You've wasted your time. Absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, good night's sleep. <laughs> <laughs> if I could describe myself as a businesswoman, I would say that I am. I would say as a businesswoman, I'm very passionate, I'm strong, and I love people. And that's what I try to do in my work. And that's what I try to offer in my deeds and my services.
0: Yeah, I love that so much. If I could go back to day one of my business,
1: I'd tell myself. I'd tell myself, get help, get a few more hands to help you. Because even though it's your vision, your idea, you can't be the only thing that's good for your business.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And very lastly,
1: I want my legacy to be that. I want my legacy to be that. I inspired and empowered people to cook the very best dishes, memorable dishes shared with family and friends. I love that so much. Okay, I'm going to add one really quickly then on the back of that.
0: I am a pescatarian. It's Saturday today that we're recording this and I want to cook something African for dinner. And I feel like I've just done a food shop,
1: so I've got quite a lot in the fridge. Go. What should I make tonight? You're pescatarian. Let me just ask you, what spices do you have? Do you have any peanuts in your cupboards? Uh I've got cashews, like raw cashews. OK. Do you have lemons? Yeah.
0: Do you have mustard? Yeah. Seeds. I don't know if I've got mustard. I've got mustard seeds.
1: Or Dijon. I could pick some up, though, easily. You could pick Dijon. I'll tell you to make a yassa. It's a Senegalese dish, amazing. It's one of the most popular things on my menu for catering, at supper clubs, cookery class. So it's, uh, it's almost French inspired because the French colonized Senegal. It's called yassa. The original dish is poulet yassa, that's chicken yassa. So it's made of caramelized onions. Yeah. You cook onions slow and slow till it's sweet and sticky. And then you add mustard, Dijon preferably, and juice of a lemon, zest of a lemon, some spices if you have a human coriander. If not, that's fine. You could just add maybe a vegetable stock and cook it into a nice thick sauce. Add your fish in it. What I do is when I make a yasa with fish, I make the sauce very thick and I brush it on the fish and I bake it. So you can bake it as a dry fish dish or you can poach the fish in the sauce. Amazing, sweet, tangy, if You like spice, you can add cayenne pepper or maybe just a, yeah, yeah. a heavy dose of black pepper. I think you'd love that. Oh my gosh! Right, so it's called yasa. Ah, this yeah, is amazing. thank you. That's anti-yami. Oh, Lerato, it's been so amazing speaking to you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. A lovely talking to you, darling. And look up on my website, I've got the recipe somewhere. Google Lerato yasa, you find it somewhere. I'm, I'm gonna do that now. So good, thank you so yeah. much. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for listening to that episode if you have a minute to spare and enjoyed it of course it would mean so much to me if you could please rate the podcast below or leave a review if you fancy being extra kind as apparently it helps to give the series a little boost and helps other female founders and aspiring business owners to find it for now though enjoy the rest of your day and please do look out for next week's episode